Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fourth series, we'll be talking about flux and flow, how we navigate change and the forces that steer our lives. In your, in your most recent novel, you... <laughs> it was autumn when I met Emma Jane Unsworth, and under the threat of rain and the insistent call of seagulls, we sat in a shelter on Brighton Seafront, close to where she once lived. Emma is the author of three acclaimed novels, a memoir which will be published next year, and now also a screenwriter. Her work has captured the shifts in women's lives, from friendship to motherhood, settling down, identity and belonging. She spoke about love, leaving the North, and her experience of postnatal depression. So I've brought you to this spot because the flat that I used to live in that I've just moved out of is just over the road. Um, and I suppose this feels like my bit of beach in Brighton. This is the spot where I've lived for five years. It's the bit of sea that I've swum in. Um, and, and it just feels really familiar. There's a little cafe there that I quite often um, used to go to for a cup of tea or a bag of chips. And as you can hear in the background, my local seagulls <laughs> chirruping away. Is a kind way to put it. <laughs> but you didn't grow up by the sea, did you? I didn't, no, far from it. Um, I grew up in Manchester, in a, in a northern suburb of Manchester called Presswich, which was great. And, and I lived in Manchester for most of my life, apart from going to Liverpool University for three years, um, which wasn't that far. But yeah, I, I stayed in Manchester until I was in my mid-30s. And, and yeah, and I, I, I do miss it. But uh, I just reached a point in my mid-30s where, for various reasons, I decided to move to London, first of all. And, um, and I lived there for a year, which was, which was good in many ways, but it also rinsed me spiritually, financially, <laughs> emotionally. And so I decided to move to Brighton. And it was, I, I chose to move to Brighton also because I was falling in love at that time with a man who is now my husband. And, and he was living in Brighton. So the trips to Brighton that I, I made from London, well, as I was getting to know him, I felt as though simultaneously I was getting to know Brighton and falling in love with Brighton at the same time. And so, yeah, so it was, it was a simultaneous love affair between my husband Ian and, and the city of Brighton. That's a very lovely way to put it. Um, how has Brighton changed in the five years or so that you've lived here? Good question. Well, from my perception, it started to feel like home in a way that I didn't ever think it could. I didn't think anywhere other than Manchester could. And, and at first I thought Brighton was very nice and it was, I've always loved the sea. I've always been drawn to the sea. My favourite place in the whole world, even more than Manchester, is probably the Scottish Highlands um, and the coastline up there, especially the very west, northwestern coast of Scotland is, is my absolute favourite place in the world. Um, I go up there whenever I can in a motorhome. And so... Brighton made sense because of that and my love of Brighton made sense because of that but um but I also thought that it was quite a I'm going to say this because I'm going to correct it after I thought it was a bit of a sedate place at first <laughs> so compared to London which is where I was living at the time and I was wrong about that and and I think since since being here I've really come to appreciate the people here and also it's been a I, I thought initially I never could create here and I thought you know I'll, I'll never write about here but actually that was wrong as well and, and, and now I am thinking about ideas that, that are set here 
and and writing things that that are set here as well we were going to move back up north before everything kicked off this year we were thinking about it but we decided not to mainly because I think sometimes you have to you have to be thinking about making a move before you realize how how many roots you've put down somewhere or how attached you are somewhere and when we started thinking about it seriously there was actually a lot to lose and it would it was it would have been a huge loss and so so we thought no we, we've all got friends here when I say we that's me and my husband and our three-year-old son we've all got lives and friends and support networks here and that all felt like too much to sacrifice and and so I think we've got the happy medium and of course it's a lovely place for people to visit there's a lovely bit in Adults, your most recent book, where you say about missing the North and about you missed its winds and mosses and its cold, thirsty cities. Is that right? It is right. Thank you for remembering oh, that thanks. so perfectly. Oh, Do you still feel that way about the North? Absolutely. Um, yeah, those are the things that I miss about it. Those, those words to me are very tangible and also there's a nostalgia in terms of my life and what I did in the cities you know the thirsty cities is because I did a lot of drinking in them <laughs> and um, and that that association with that time in my life there yeah I miss I miss Manchester so much and the and the wild adventures that I used to have there the wild nocturnal adventures that I had with friends and so so yeah I miss all of that and I also think there's a certain quality to the light and to it's probably to do with stone and the greenery that grows on the stones and and yeah when I think of my favorite walks in the north like my mum and dad live in Rossendale and I think of like the walks by stone walls where there are plants growing out of them I've got to think about plants growing out of walls I know it's such a strange thing but I love it when I see plants growing out of a wall it gives me such a thrill it makes me so happy when you are in the north now, do you see, is that the measure of your own change? Do you see how much you, you've shifted in your life when you're back in those places and on those streets looking at those walls and stones? Yeah, I think so. I think they're a mixture of seeing the things that have changed and that haven't changed and, and sometimes the things that you've almost fictionalised with your own memory and that were never that way, but they needed to be that way to suit your narrative at the time in your head. So yeah, I think that the biggest measure of change for me, as I'm sure for most people, is just seeing the people ageing more than anything and not, not, not in a bad way necessarily. I always think of that lovely line of Yeats, the sorrows of your changing face. And I love that because I think that to love those things, to, to be able to love the sorrows in someone's face, you know, that love the changes, that's what I feel. It's, it's a really sort of bittersweet tenderness that's, that's a great feeling. And, and then not always in the ageing phases, meaning elderly people, quite often just in my sister's kids and like the way that they, every time I see them, they've usually grown by at least six months, which usually means at least an inch of height. And, and so, um, so yeah, so, so those for me, the, the people and the way that they have changed are the real measures and markers, I think. You mentioned about the the narrative that you might have had at a particular time and, and how you construct things to fit in, worlds to fit in with that narrative. How able are you to have a flexibility to narrative now as you've grown older? In terms of in terms of accepting my memories? Or? Yeah, or um, I think when we are young we are wedded 
quite often to a narrative of this is how our life is going to be. And at certain points, we sudden we suddenly realise that maybe it's not, and, and it's okay to have to have a very different narrative to what we may have expected at mm. you know eighteen, twenty one, whatever. Absolutely, I think that I've had to shed that. Probably in my thirties. That was the 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 decade where I shed most of my attachment narrative because various things in life just weren't working out like I thought they would um I hadn't ended up with the person that I thought I was going to be with forever I hadn't started a family when I thought I was going to start a family my career wasn't doing what I thought it should be doing by that point so nothing was was going to to plan you know according to the fairy tale that I'd been sold by society but also the one that I'd created in my head and so at first sure that's heartbreaking but I think you very quickly move and adjust and adapt and change and keep moving and and I think now there's almost fun for me in disrupting any narratives that I set for myself so that now I've almost come out the other side thinking okay those those old narratives didn't work and that that destroyed me for a while um but, but I got over it and I, I didn't die and, and I kind of I grew stronger again and and then started making my own new narratives and and now as and when they come along I, I really expect them to, to to stick I really expect them to stay constant and and actually there's fun there is fun to be had in almost pulling the carpet out from under my own feet and, and I suppose in the work that I do as well I really enjoy as a writer playing with with um the idea of, of what the expected narrative might be for a female character, for example, in a story, and and just completely smashing that. I, might, I like to write rom-coms, really. I mean, I mean, gritty, edgy rom-coms, hopefully, with, with a bit of philosophy chucked in, but, but essentially the story arc you think is going to be that and then I like to disrupt that at the end and and say no actually because that's a patriarchal narrative where you've got a messy woman which is usually how my characters start out being healed and saved and and then suddenly she's valuable and worthwhile of the love of a man you know at the end and and so no I I quite like to to smash all of that and and usually have her in a very different situation than she thought she'd be in and um, just to because I think that women deserve more options than the fairy tale narrative presents. When did you start to question that narrative? I think I'd always questioned it on some level. I think even when I've, I first started writing as a kid, there was always a rebellious flicker within me that wanted to to disrupt the old stories I felt had been sold. But but I think I didn't have the courage to do it until my own life started showing me that that you can't get too attached to to a particular idea or and you can't get too steadfast in your plans you you can't plan that that hard or that long because life's just not like that and then I think that when you've learned the rules of whatever art form you you decide to to turn your hand to once you've learned the rules and you think okay I can do it that way I understand it that way then the fun really kicks in because you can start to play around with with the rules and and make things that feel really new and that feel really exciting and that surprise even you in the in the twists and the turns that that they take and I think that's that's the the dream for for most people making things to you know to really make them their own how different do you think you are now from the person who wrote your first novel? And what do you like about yourself and your writing more now? 
Hmm, I think... I think I'm very different because everything I write is always semi-autobiographical anyway. So it's quite easy for me to see the me in my work, in my books. And But there's always... By the time they come out, because books take so long to come out... By the time you know the great lizard of literature turns, it's, it's it's at least a year, and so so you've got all of that time to when you've finished a book from it coming out. So by the time you come around to really talking about it and thinking about it, you've usually cleared quite a lot of emotional distance, and it doesn't feel like you anymore. But at the same time, you can see the bits of your history that that made it made it into it. So yeah, so so I look back and I think I was a really different person there. I always feel like. I've grown and changed and got a little bit wiser every time and hopefully a little bit of a better writer as well. Usually the things that make me cringe the most when I read old work are the stylistic things. I'm like, oh, that's a bit of overwriting there. Well, that's terrible. So sometimes even when I'm reading out at events, I will change things. I'll kind of do an edit, which is really bad, isn't it? But, but I just can't resist because I don't want people thinking that I write like this, you know, even 10 years ago terrible vanity so I think that yeah I can see I can definitely see that I've I'm a very different person now but thank goodness for that adults had as one of its major themes the ideas of uh, social media and our addiction to our phones and I'm guessing you must be we're of a similar sort of age but um, I'm guessing you saw in your lifetime that move towards technology that I saw and our sort of obsession with checking phones, social media, email. I still remember when I sent my first email. How do you, I guess, sit on that compulsion throughout the day, that sort of ebb and flow of desire to check technology constantly throughout the day? I have to be really strict about it. Um, I have to take it off my phone quite often so that I just can't get at it. I have to forget passwords or, or tell people who love me to change my password and not tell me what the new one is <laughs> I, I suppose for me it's it's really frightening social media in lots of ways it's frightening because of the hold it has over me I've never had an addiction to anything but I think that that with social media I have come close in the past to certainly having a very strong compulsion to constantly check in an almost mindless way so that there's nothing positive to be gained. It's just it's just a circle, like a loop that I'm aware that my thumb and my eyes are stuck in as I'm just looking at these same things over and over and over, like some kind of strange, you know, glazed robot. And so it, it scares me and that's why I wanted to write about it and to find humour in it because I wanted to try and make something that was scary, funny. It's useful sometimes, I suppose, when for promoting things. It's really useful to let people know what I'm up to. If, if they're interested in what I do, I can tell them that I've got a new thing coming out or that I'm doing an event, and that's nice. But but it, it just it doesn't stop there. There's always it always tips over into something that feels unhealthy. I think for me because I can't once I start using it again, I can't resist going and looking in all the little nooks and crannies don't always make me feel good so yeah I have to be really strict about it when I've got anything I need to get done when I need to be productive I can't be on social media yeah keep keep a distance a safe distance a safe social distance from social media very very wise you mentioned earlier about uh, loving the sea and um, this sea I guess is very different to the sea in Scotland that you love what's a what's the character of this one 
character of this sea? Well, first of all, it's the beach, which is very pebbly here. So my husband always shouts at me for for saying that, that this isn't a proper beach because it's pebbles, but it's not a proper beach, really, because a proper beach is sand and a proper beach is comfortable. But it has character and I love it. And as long as I've got a deck chair or a sun lounger, it's fine on my sciatica. <laughs> and in terms of the sea itself, it's quite, it's usually quite calm. I suppose it's, it's just like a nice grey, a simple sort of, it has occasional flashes of turquoise. And it gets wild for a couple of months a year. It's not wild all the time like the sea in Scotland. And when it does, it's really exciting. So we always come down and stand on the, the little jetties that go out on the groins and wait for the, the huge waves to come up. And But yeah, I mean, I love it. It's got its charms. It's got its charms. And, it, and it, it's great for swimming in. And that's been great. It actually saved me this summer because it was so hot and because we couldn't really go very far. So but actually just being able to take a dip in the sea and sticking my head underwater just felt wonderful and life-affirming. My friend Amy Liptrot, who is a writer who wrote a book called The Outrun, um, which is set in Scotland, is a daily sea swimmer and she thinks if you swim in the sea every day you'll never die. So that's worth trying. How does it feel when you're standing amid the waves or when you're immersed in the waves? What does it feel to have all that changeability around you? It feels great and I've overcome my fear of of not being able to see in the water. I used to be very fearful. I'm a real shark in the deep end of the baths kind of girl at heart. Um, and so I think I used to be afraid of what, what there was lurking beneath the surface, whereas whereas now I have no fear and and yeah, I just I, I leap straight in. And I think just having that, just feeling suspended in water is such a lovely feeling. Um, there's nothing quite like it, especially in, in seawater, where you get a bit of a float on as well. It makes me very happy just to lie on my back in the sea. So from where we're sitting in this shelter, I can see, uh, firstly, the place where you got married, which That's is right. a, I've forgotten what we call it now, it's a vertical pier. I'm sorry, it's the vertical pier. <laughs> it's got a rotating sort of donut, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And also the building where you lived, yeah. as you mentioned. An awful lot has happened between getting married and living there or, or vice versa. Yeah. And some of it has been quite difficult and been a lot of change for you. Yes. Could you tell us what, what happened and how you dealt with it? Yes. So I had my son, my first child, three years ago, just over, and... I didn't really know what to expect, but but I certainly didn't expect what happened, um, which was very bad postnatal depression, which came when he was about a month old and just really blindsided me and and Andy and my husband and, and just ruined probably at least a year of all of our lives, I think. Um, and we just didn't know which way was up anymore. We were just so exhausted and I'd never had anything like that before I'd never had any any kind of depression or any men mental illness before um, so I didn't know what was wrong with me and and also I think quite often when you have a baby all of your normal reference points are gone and you just don't know 
what's normal anymore, what's meant to feel like normal anymore. When it's your first one, you just don't know how tired you're supposed to feel or how um, how much affection for the baby you're supposed to feel. Or you just, yeah, I, I felt as though I hadn't been told what to expect. And, and I don't know who, who I expected to have told me, but I felt as though I'd just been been told that it that it would be fine and it would be great and I could have everything and do everything as a modern woman and feminist and actually that was impossible because I couldn't do it all I couldn't do it all because I wasn't getting enough sleep um, because my baby was a really bad sleeper and so I was just just absolutely strung out with with that and then also I was trying I was forcing myself to keep working whenever I could because I'm self-employed and a writer who's who just about started to make a bit of money and that felt hard won and so I didn't want to lose that um, and was very fearful about that and felt like I was losing my identity as well or at least my identity was becoming confused so that I was just suddenly in this maelstrom of confusion and 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 dist- I felt distant from everyone and everything I'd ever known and loved, including my husband, including myself, including my baby. Everything just felt like it was swirling. And I could, I, and that the only, the best way I can describe it is to say I I didn't know which way was up. That's what it felt like. It felt like I'd been plunged to the bottom of the sea, and I just didn't know which way to swim to get out of it. There are so many points of change in a woman's life. And it seems as if we're only just starting to talk about them and, and what it actually genuinely feels like. Do you feel, not responsibility, but do you feel an, an urgency to communicate that to, to a wider audience? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think I felt silenced when I was going through all of this. I felt like I couldn't speak about it. Firstly, because I didn't know there was anything. I didn't know that it was abnormal. I didn't know what the normal experience should be. Um, I didn't understand that there is a spectrum of of thoughts and feelings that you have after you have a child, and some are bad and some are good, but that's all normal. They don't all have to be good, and I think I expected them all to be good, and I would suddenly be reborn as this mythological creature, a mother, and, and it's just such dangerous nonsense to to, to say that... that there's a transformation there because there's not and I think we really fetishise motherhood in a very dangerous way and we mythologise in a very dangerous way and it sets women up women up for a fall quite often and it's 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 not progressive for feminism at all and so I think it's really important to, to talk about it and even though that talking about it is really hard and I suppose I'd say talk about it if you feel you can because I think we also put so much pressure on women to reach out and speak out and do all those things and it's not always possible you don't often know what's wrong with you and then you also feel a great sense of shame and failure that's what I felt I felt very ashamed that I wasn't doing a great job of this because I'm a very proud person and I don't like to admit that I'm not good at things and so I overcompensated almost I was like baking when people came round and like I don't bake I can't bake but I you know I needed to show them that I was mastering this like you know and I really wasn't I was dying inside and and I couldn't talk about it and I think there's there's a, there's a historical association of women and, and silence and women are too often silenced about all of their bodily experiences and about various things that happen at various stages of life that we're made to feel ashamed of or we're made to feel as though we're not quite coming up to to the mark 
And, and when I was going through all this, it took me months and months and months to admit and accept that there was something wrong, to seek help for that. Um, I had a really good therapist. And then I went on to medication, which was also very helpful. And the combination of the two helped me heal. It helped me pull myself out of that hole and, and really start to enjoy motherhood and get it and just like think, oh, that's great. But but I couldn't, when, it took me so long to get to that point because I couldn't find anything anywhere to read because I know women are so scared of admitting that that, that they can't do it or that they, they have any negative feelings because it feels like a betrayal of your child as well, I think or of the sisterhood or something but yeah and I think what what I've realized coming out the other side is that there's a grief in in any big life change there's a loss in any big life change and and that's normal that's okay and 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 accepting that grief alongside the joy of the new experience and saying these things are simultaneous they can happen at the same time it doesn't have to be one or the other even when it's something you're meant to be grateful for like a child there can be grief there too there can be loss of there is loss of your former life and your former self and your former freedoms and just to say it is it's just this whole big new situation which has all these conflicting feelings within it you've got to get used to that and it takes time and you've got to be kind to yourself and if you can talk about it so that other women who are struggling don't feel like they're monsters or freaks or they're doing it wrong it's just really hard and it's just one of the many many things that I think are really hard for women you're about to have your second child how different has this pregnancy been and, and how are you feeling about, about what may happen the other side of it's been, it's been so different obviously I've been at home lots with my feet up which has been great but then also I think there's just a background of anxiety in the world obviously huge and then you, you start thinking what am I doing bringing a child into this is it wrong so all of that all of that going on um, I'm glad that I haven't been doing as much travelling for work I suppose because my feet really swelled up with my son they were so swollen from just stomping around London all the time whereas I haven't done that this time around so they're a little bit better so physically I think it's been it's been great mentally I do have fears that the postnatal depression will come back but I also feel prepared and like and positive about doing it again and trying it again because I'm in a very different place I have some sense of what my own spectrum of thoughts and feelings might be and I think every pregnancy is different every baby's different and, I, and I'm hopeful that that it will be very different this time around I think just feeling a bit more prepared I wish I could go back in time and tell myself tell the first time around pregnant me that you know it's going to be hard but it's going to be okay and that there's going to be a lot of negative feelings with the positive ones and just go with them and that's okay too I wish I could say all of that because that's what I didn't know but now I know all that and so I do feel as though this will be be better this time around I know that it'll still be hard but 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 I'm up for it I'm up, I was up for going around again so so I knew I'd reached a point of healing in some way so so yeah fingers crossed <laughs> You mentioned that sense of loss that comes with the joy of, of having a child and the loss for the life that you no longer have. You wrote about that kind of life so accurately and brilliantly with, with animals and that was then made into a film which you wrote the this, this screenplay for. How has it been for you to change into a totally different genre of writing? It's been really hard in that it's been a very steep learning curve but I like 
hard things like that that where I can learn because I'm, I'm a bit of a SWOT and I like I like taking you know the sort of academic approach to it and thinking about this is something new to tackle so it was it was a good a good challenge in that way and also I suppose the the easy part about it was that I got a lot of help and I think that it's, it's so massively collaborative a screenplay even compared to a novel with a screenplay it's so collaborative even from the start and I really I really enjoy working in that way I find it very energizing as long as I know that I can then go and have some time to think and process everything I find the actual bombardment of opinions and of notes and of people helping along the way um, and helping me break it down into into scenes and intersections that was great that was joyous that was that was really exciting and 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 it's a really nice contrast to working as a novelist where you spend great swathes of time in solitude which I also love but actually sometimes you do get a little bit lost and snowblind within that but I think with writing a screenplay you don't get much chance there's always 10 people that you can always email or message in the case of animals I had a wonderful producer, I had many wonderful producers, but one producer in particular who'd optioned the book originally, Sarah Brocklehurst. She gave me the chance originally, she just, when she optioned the book, she said, do you want to write it? And I thought, yes, you know, sort of bitter handoff. And she didn't have to do that. And that was, you know, that was, it was amazing that she did because to take a risk on me like that, I hadn't written a screenplay before, but you need people, I think the only way you ever make bounds in your career is through somebody taking a leap of faith and and saying I believe you can do this and it's different but but I will get you the support that you need so I just felt carried and helped as I was learning which which was great is that the key to change for you in your life having people to to turn to and to help carry you through and people you rely on even when you talked about being loving swimming in the sea and being able to float a little bit is that the key to it for you Absolutely. I think as much as I'm a person who enjoys being alone a lot to recharge, even just day to day, the times of my life where I have isolated myself because I was, when I was younger, if I went through a heartbreak, I would, or something close to heartbreak, I would isolate myself and it actually made me worse. Whereas now I know that the way that I heal, the way that I recover is through being around the right people and the right things and and drawing on that support and not seeing that as a weakness to to have that need and being there for my friends and for anyone you know who who needs me in return I think that that's just a really beautiful symbiotic aspect of friendship so in the face of change and flux and flow you have various options you can you can run headlong at it you can sit it out wait for it to to pass or you can retreat I guess into into your own art um how do you deal with it so I think in different ways I think that I the first thing that I try to do is break things down into smaller pieces in order to deal with them when I I feel overwhelmed and out of control because I think when we talk about control it often makes us feel like we should be stopping something and setting it. Whereas actually, I think, for me, when I, when I try and think about control in a healthy way, it's just about embodying something from the inside so that I feel I have autonomy rather than keeping it still and stopping it. So for, for something with, when I feel overwhelmed with, with some work, 
I usually break it down into like or like a marathon. A novel's like a marathon, isn't it? So if you break it down into into smaller chunks, it just makes it so much more doable. And then, I suppose in relation to the postnatal depression and in relation to the way I felt about my body and my mind coming out of that one of the things that I wanted to do to to tell myself that I owned my body again was that was I had a tattoo done on my arm because my son's one of my son's names is Fox because I have red hair and we thought he might have red hair too and we thought that would be a, a nice little nod and also I really love foxes and so the tattoo is of a fox I got this done after I'd come out of the postnatal depression and was just feeling like I wanted to put a, a literal stamp on me to just say this is mine and and you know even though this marks a point in time but it, you know my skin will change and and even now the tattoo looks different to when I had it done it's a couple of years old now and I had it done in Canterbury by this amazing tattooist who I'd been following on Instagram and really loved her work and it's a fox a fox cub that's curled up on a little stack of books and when people ask me what it's about if I'm in a cheeky mood, I'll say it's my son smothering my career. <laughs> but otherwise, I'll just say it's two things that have great value in my life. <laughs> um, and, and there are some words around it. And the words around it are be secret and exult, which is from a Yeats poem, because I love Yeats. And I mention Yeats a lot in, in my book, Animals. And these lines are from a poem called To a Friend Whose Work Has Come to Nothing. And it's, it's a reminder, I suppose, to me... To, to do my work for the process itself because one of the things that I was really worried about when I had a baby and when I felt like I was losing my identity and, and struggling in, this, in the storm of the, of the PND I, I lost sight of of my love of the process of, of actually writing and of being in my nice little bubble I felt like I had no little bubble anymore and I was just so worried about money and about 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 whether people would forget about me and whether I'd forget about me and whether I'd have anything interesting to say anymore and all of those worries about what the end result would be you know the, the goal the published book the, the, the thing the object was actually I'm not a writer to make objects or make money, not primarily. I'm a writer because I just love to write and I can't think or move through the world or grow any other way. And so this was a reminder to to do my work, to be secret and exult, to just be in my bubble, love my bubble and and just and feel happy and secure there. And I think that's as well as just helping me heal psychologically and spiritually, I think that that's how you make the best stuff anyway. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower and more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.